Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So today we are doing something a little different, actually. It's a very special uh, edition of Newsweek's The Debate. We are partnering with Paragraph, which is a debate website full of brilliant debates. Um, it is run by an impressive young gentleman named Jonathan Stern. I've had the privilege of partaking in two of them. They have kind of dueling 500-word dialogues. And today we are just thrilled to have the ability to bring one of those written debates to life for you, the listener. So, Badia, what is that debate? Who are we about to hear from? We are going to hear from Martin Gurry and Yuval Levin, who debated America's elites and America's institutions and the loss of trust people have in institution, and whether that's because of our elites or whether our elites are the way to save it. But before we get to that, we would like to introduce our new sponsor on the debate, Herzog Wine Cellars, which you can find at HerzogWine.com. Herzog Wine Cellars offers a wine club experience like no other. Whether newly discovering your favorite flavors and textures or exploring the vineyards across the world, even if you have a taste for the rare and exclusive, you can choose the club that's right for you. We will come back with Martin Gurry and Yuval Levin. This is the Debate in Newsweek podcast partnering this week with Paragraph. So we'll be right back. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. So today we have a very special edition episode, as we've already kind of uh, described for you, the listener. We are partnering with Paragraph. We are bringing uh, to the Newsweek audience a written paragraph exchange that we thought was particularly wonderful. Today we're discussing America's elites. Are they the problem? Are they the solution? Are they somewhere in between? Uh, so, Badia, who are we just about to hear from? We could not be more thrilled with today's guests, truly two luminaries of our time. Yuval Levin is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and a founding and current editor of National Affairs. His latest book is called A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. And we are so thrilled to have Martin Gurry with us. Martin is a former CIA analyst whose book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, is an absolute cult favorite and has become absolute canon for people trying to understand Brexit and Trump. Martin Yuval, welcome to the debate. Thank you. Thank you very much. So over at Paragraph, you guys debated the breakdown in trust in American institutions and the crisis of confidence in our elites. And you guys actually agreed with each other that trust in American institutions is failing and that a crisis in moral authority in our leaders and the moral atrophy of our elites is really at the heart of the matter. So I want to start by asking you each just a simple question. Define what you mean by elites. Let's start with you, Yuval. Yeah, you know, the, the question of what an elite is actually gets to the, the, the challenge that every democracy faces, which is that every society has an elite. In every society, there are some people who rise to positions of power and wealth and privilege and authority. And in every society, there is some organizing principle by which you can describe them as rising, so whether that's who their parents are, whether that, what, that's what their religion is, whether that's what kind of education they had. 
where they are in the culture, something that is that describes what holds the people who are in positions of leadership and authority in a society in common. That's the elite. The elites are those people who run our institutions uh, for good or bad. And I, you know, I, 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 a democracy always has trouble with an elite, but no society has ever been free of an elite. Martin? Yeah, that's generally correct. My, my um, definition had to do more with um, the institutions themselves. Uh, the modern world, that world that emerged at the end of the 19th century and probably acquired its final shape, oh, say, in the 1960s or so, uh, was a world of these towering, pyramidal, top-down institutions. And for me, the elites are those people that inhabit those institutions. So very simply, when I was uh, working at CIA, that made me an elite. Now, I'm now a, a visiting fellow at um, Mercatus Center, so that makes me kind of like a, a visiting elite, I think, is the way I describe myself. <laughs> Um, so, in, so in the debate, Martin, you wrote that the quality of our elites has declined appallingly and you asked how do we get new people at the top and you've all, you agreed and you wrote populism won't be much better than technocracy at producing a respectable elite we can trust. So what I want to ask though is kind of from a more populist point of view, why is the goal to create a better elite rather than to have no elite? I, you know, I have so much nostalgia for, I think, times in American history where it felt like the elites were at least more beholden to the masses, were closer to the masses, were made up of less highly educated people. I mean, why is the goal to have better elites rather than to have elites with less authority? Let's start with you, Martin. Well, I mean, not to put too fine a point of it, but I'm old enough to remember when you could get more democratic um, feedback from below in a papal conclave than you could in, in the nomination of a president. Okay, so the world you, has, you have just described, I don't think ever existed. Uh, the world of the 20th century that so many people are so nostalgic about right now was, was, it was tremendously effective and, and, and uh, historically uh, world-changing in many ways, but top-down, completely top-down. As to elites, it's in our DNA. There, if there are three people in a room, and this has actually been tested by psychologists, if three people in a room, one person is the person that everybody else, that the other two want to copy. We have this in our DNA. I don't think we can run a modern state, a modern society, without, without elites. The question is, how many do we need in, in those institutions? How big they have to be? How pyramidal they have to be? And then what is the quality of those particular elites? Yuval? Yeah, I, I think basically there's no way around it. One way or another, you're going to have an elite. It could be an elite that pretends not to be an elite, but I'm not sure that's better uh, than one that's a little more responsible. I would say this. There have been times in American history when our elite was not as unitary as it is now, when it didn't present the same cultural character. The people who ran major corporations were very, very different from the people who, who ran newspapers or the people who ran Hollywood studios um, or the people you would find in universities. They came from different places, they had different backgrounds, they had different sort of cultural characteristics, and an important part of American life consisted of a kind of negotiation between these different sorts of elites. A lot of our politics was taken up with that. One way in which 21st century America is distinct is that we, we really have one kind of elite now. The people who run truly major corporations are very, very similar to the people who are university presidents 
uh, or professors or to the people who you would find in the newsrooms of our major uh, media organs. They come from the same kind of cultural group. They've tended to go to the same set of small number of schools. They agree with each other instinctively without having to think very much on a very broad range of issues. And that gives us the feeling that we have a much more overbearing elite than we used to because our politics is less a negotiation between elites, which was, I would say, a less democratic politics, but uh, a, a more bargaining-oriented politics. Now our politics is much more top and bottom. There's an elite. It's all the same, and it's different from the rest of the society, culturally different, intellectually different. So we have a, a top and bottom society to a greater degree than we used to, but I don't think that's because we have less elite power or fewer elites, but because we have a much more concentrated and uniform set of elites now than we uh, than we did a few generations ago. So let me hop in right there. I, I, I definitely agree with, you know, the, the crux of what both of you guys are saying. I mean, it seems to me, um, you know, I mean, kind of the struggle between the elites and the demos obviously is a problem that goes back to classical antiquity. You know, the Marxists kind of thought that they had a radical egalitarian solution to this. It hasn't exactly worked out well, um, you know, as the 100 million death toll of the Soviet Union, among other data points, I think would indicate. So this does seem like a problem that that, that is with us. Um, but I want to pick up on what Yuval was talking about there. It's, it, it's kind of this sentiment, and I've, I've written a little bit about this myself. You know, Michael Lind calls it the professional managerial class, right? And in some of my group chats, that, that ends up getting abbreviated to just PMC for short, just to, because it's such common shorthand, I think, these days, to refer to this 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 cabal, frankly, of, of people who have just been vetted by all the quote-unquote correct gatekeeping institutions, you know, whether it's Exeter or Andover or Yale, Harvard, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. So... While bearing in mind that this tension between uh, the elites and the demos is probably kind of a perpetual problem that no society can really go without, how can we still work with, within that paradigm to kind of get around um, the kind of narrowness, uh, the insular nature of these gatekeeping institutions, if that possibly makes sense? We can start with you, Yuval. Well, one thing I'd say is that there, there are two ways to think about elite formation. Well, there's more, but two broad ways to think about what institutions of elite formation do. One is that they are selective. They're gatekeepers. They somehow decide who enters the elite of a society. And the other is that they impose restraints and responsibilities on that elite. I think the institutions that now serve to form American elites play the first role, but not the second. Our elites basically are formed by a small set of universities where once you've gone through them, you've been imbued with that culture. And I would say it's a culture, not a cabal, in the sense that it's not a conspiracy. They just actually are very similar to each other. And they share some, some assumptions that guide how they use their power um, in ways that are shaped by these formative educational institutions. And... The, we don't do nearly as good a job at then imposing responsibilities on those who have power in our society. That's done by things like professions. It's done by, uh, by a, an idea like the, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of rough noblesse oblige that the wasps used to have in America. There's a lot wrong with that elite, a lot wrong with it. But people in that elite had a sense that they owe something to the larger society and that in return for the kind of power and privilege they had, they have to exercise some set of responsibilities, which basically amount to constraints, right? And I think that's also what professional formation does for you. A professional is someone you trust because there are things they wouldn't do. 
It's not just that they know things you don't know. You know, an accountant understands the carried interest rule, and I, I've given up understanding the carried interest rule. You just hire an accountant. <laughs> but the reason you really trust the accountant is not that, but that there are things an accountant wouldn't do, wouldn't put his name to, wouldn't sign uh, on the dotted line. And you trust that person because they hold themselves to some standard. You might trust a journalist because that person, before reporting something, puts it through a process that you can take seriously. When people are no longer willing to do that, when, they're, when they understand these institutions as platforms for themselves to perform on, rather than as a set of constraints that shape their behavior, then they're an irresponsible elite. And I think you can look from institution to institution now in American life and find people who view their roles as, uh, as essentially performative and not prescriptive, and therefore is not bound by whether it's professional or political or civic or cultural institutional responsibilities. So that uh, the, making an elite that's more answerable, that's more accountable and responsible requires imposing those kinds of constraints. I think that's part of what it takes to have a more fit, a better elite. Martin? Yeah, um, I violently agree with all of that. Uh, I, would then, I would then ask, why is it happening? Uh, what is what is what is driving our elites to be so performative when in the past they not have not necessarily been? Uh, and uh, many reasons, obviously, every human event has an infinite number of causes. But I always highlight the fact that we are in a unprecedented moment of information turbulence. All right, where um, every institution that was set up to deal with the information uh, framework of the 20th century is in crisis and where uh, every elite that did its thing uh, behind closed doors uh, 50 years ago is now not only exposed in their policies and their errors and their um, misjudgments but you know whatever goes on in the bedroom even is exposed and, and it's all become uh, the, info, the, the information agenda is being set by elite failure. I think the elites feel like they are in a state of crisis. I think during a state of crisis, you are you, you just gonna lock ranks, right? They think alike and they talk alike because they feel threatened, and, and they're right. They are threatened. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, obviously, we've seen kind of a you know a, a, an ascendant populism that seems kind of spanning the entire political spectrum these days, and um, but. Let me pick up on that. So I, I used to work for Ben Shapiro at the, at, at the Daily Wire. And one thing that Ben used to say frequently, and I, I, I certainly agree with this, uh, I'd be curious if, if you both agree as well and what implications that might have, is that there is, um, I don't want to get too, too far into semantics or anything, but there is a distinction between elite and elitism, right? Um, we basically want our elites to care about interests outside of the parochial PMC, right? Outside of kind of the narrow uh, interests, whether it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, 50 miles in every direction of the beltway, whether it's kind of just this sprawling PMC that is found in most urban centers across America, frankly. I guess my question is, what are like the actual nuts and bolts of doing that? Like, how do we actually... Um, make elites less elitist in their outlook? Um, is, is it purely a function of kind of reforming kind of those quintessential meeting institutions, kind of like Tocqueville 101, or is there actually a role for kind of state power here, or is that kind of overthinking it possibly? 
Well, I think that it's a mix of those things. It is more than just the 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 generic kind of Tocquevillian picture of let's restore civil civil society. I think that's important. I think it could be a consequence of a change in the character of the American elite, but I'm not sure that I see how it is a prescription. Um, where would we start? Well, how would we do that? It, it seems to me that first of all, you have to think about the incentives that confront the elites. Um, and of course, that's especially true for our political elite, um, where there are electoral incentives so that the demands that flow upward from the public uh, matter. It's also true to some extent with economic incentives that confront other elites and cultural incentives that confront everyone. Um, I, I, and th this is part of why when I've tried to think about this question, it's been in terms of a recovery of the demand for responsibility. Responsibility is a, is a wonderful American term. Um, it, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary used to say that the first use of responsibility in English was in James Madison's notes on the Constitution. Unfortunately, they discovered an earlier use 50 years earlier, so I can't really <laughs> use that fun point anymore. But this is a, a, distinctly, uh, a distinctly Republican, small-r Republican concept that people with power have obligations. I think that needs to be a much greater part of our cultural conversation so that our complaints about elites are not in the form of we need to burn down all elite institutions, but we need to demand responsibility from elite institutions. We don't want to burn them down. We need them, but we need them to be accountable and answerable. And I think part of the culture that surrounds our, our political debates now needs to involve a demand for responsibility and accountability. In politics, that can take very concrete forms and look like a demand for specific reforms, look like rewarding people who want to allow our politics to again become an arena of negotiation rather than uh, of performance. Uh, there are ways, I think, that consumer power and economic power can work this way too. It's much more complicated. I think it's much harder to see how that operates, say, in the university which is just an elite terrain, and I'm not sure what, how, what kind of public pressure is going to work there. But it seems to me that alongside with just simple populist energy demanding uh, that elites be more functional and more effective and responsive, which is important, we also need to think specifically about responsibility, about what demands and, re and requirements should come with the kind of power that our society gives its leaders. Martin? Yeah. Um... Again, I don't agree, but but this question about elite and elitism, unfortunately, is is not being answered and will never be answered uh, in an academic uh, sort of a, a, a debating uh, setting as we have right here. Uh, it's being answered with those tremendous populist pressures, a tremendous uh, anger from below, tremendous demands for change, and yet very vague about what that change should be. Uh, so I think, first of all, we need to realize this is an urgent matter, and this is, this is not happening in a vacuum. Um, I think there are a number of paths. There's nothing simple about this. I think the first thing that, have to, that has to happen is a reconfiguration of our, of our institutions. And whenever I say that, somebody immediately says, well, do you want like a ministry of, of internet or something? And, and I want the opposite of that, right? I, want, I think our institutions are too big, cumbersome, and, and slow. Uh, and uh, to the extent that you can make 
um, the federal government services resemble uh, Amazon, for example, uh, you'll be doing the public a favor and restoring some credibility for the elites. So that's one thing is that I think they have to be reconfigured. They have to be, they're, they're made for the 20th century information environment. They're maladapted. They're like animals that are, are in an environment that has completely changed. They, they're going to have to die and some new breed of government is going to be put in there. I think secondly, a new rhetoric is necessary. Uh, the 20th century rhetoric was very utopian. It assumed that if you could put together enough power and enough science, you could fix the human condition. So you made these broad promises that you can end unemployment, you can bring forth equality. We can't do any of those things. It's not because we're bad or because or because we're um, you know uh, conspiring against against the public, but because we're ignorant. Basically, the sum of human knowledge is very small. So I think a modest and uh, very um, courageous uh, bearing of that ignorant ignorance, if you're an elite, in other words, as with COVID, where we had uh, a uh, given statement by a scientist and and by um, you know the, the, basically the the health bureaucracy every other week contradicting what had gone on before, uh, but equally every time with confidence and this is it, and as if we weren't watching the whole thing unroll. Uh, I think that's that erodes confidence, and I think that the there's going to have to be a uh, a new rhetoric of modesty and of courage and of honesty about how little we know that promises incremental things and says, well, we'll try this and then we'll try some more. The goal is fixed. The means is tentative. And finally, honestly, I do believe this this elite class, it, it, I've given up on it. I mean, I just think these people have been spoiled and, uh, by uh, um, Yuval's uh, performative uh, stage. And they basically grew up to think that's what it was to be an elite. And they just need to get the boot. And that's how we can get with that. That's that's a tricky question, too. And they want to overtake my time here. <laughs> no, you're fine. And you I, know, one, I, one thing I would add to that, I, I, I think that it's, it's important to try to recover in various cultural and political and economic arenas, the ideal of negotiation as the way our society works where the, the role of elites is to represent, to speak for elements of the public rather than to speak to the public. And our politics is built that way. It's designed to function as an arena of negotiation, but it doesn't work that way now. And if you think about it, a lot of the places that are being shut down in our culture are intended to be arenas of engagement and contention and negotiation. Congress, the media, the university, these are supposed to be places where different kinds of ideas and people engage with each other, push and pull, that's not happening now. That's being closed off in a way that it, it, you're basically witnessing an elite try to close off competition to itself. And that obviously makes it impossible to hold that elite accountable in any way. No, absolutely. But uh, negotiation and direct engagement with others is certainly something that we try to on this podcast. Maybe maybe, we'll, maybe on the other side of this break that we have to take, we'll actually even get you guys to disagree a little bit. We'll have to see. But uh, anyway, this is, just a reminder, this is uh, the Debate and Newsweek podcast. When we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to hear from the paragraph readers themselves. So thanks for your questions, and we look forward to reading them. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So just a quick reminder, this week we are partnering with Paragraph to bring to you a, a lively debate about whether America's elites are the problem, the solution, or somewhere in between. 
So now we're going to turn to paragraph readers themselves who have been gracious enough to send in their own questions based on the written exchange between Martin and Yuval that uh, was published at the Paragraph website a few months ago. So we're first going to hear, and I apologize in advance for any names I might mispronounce, but we're first going to hear from Andy Cristea. So Andy, let's hear your question. Greetings from Bucharest. Uh, my name is Andy Krista and Martin, I very much liked the ideas you've put forward in the revolt of the public. Um, I would like to follow up uh, on a main idea from uh, that uh, precious book. Um, so the ITMC technology gave people, ordinary people, the instruments in order for them to create and broadcast information. And uh, in the same time, this caused the elites and uh, their institutions uh, to to lose their previously held monopoly on um, information, on disseminating the information and on um, building narratives for the society. So I think the question that um, for me, what he was evoking was, you know, you talk a lot about how uh, our information technologies have led to this very bad thing, right? Like, you know, the corruption of institutions, our inability to, uh, you know, behave responsibly in society. But at the same time, I mean, there was a huge democratization of information with all these technologies. They gave people the ability to broadcast their thoughts and feelings. They gave us access to, you know, all of these revolutions around the world that were happening, direct access. They gave us the footage of, you know, George Floyd's murder, right? So square that circle for me. Talk to us about how you see that. Like, that's got to be a good thing, no? Oh, I mean, it it is one of the strange and most remarkable uh, things to an old guy like me uh, (laughs) to watch how many things, how many aspects of 21st century life are, are to me, almost science fiction, all right? Uh, And and wonderful, okay? Uh, I mean, we just had this terrible pandemic where we were all got locked down and man, I was, I was, ordering my my food and everything I needed. And and two days later, there was on my doorstep. All right. That didn't used to happen. Um, Yes, I think part of what's happening is there has been a democratization of information, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's probably a little misleading. There's um, uh, uh, Andre Mir calls it the emancipation of authorship. It's a little little wordy, but I think uh, it conveys that better than democratization. Anybody can be an author, all right? Uh, Those who get listened to, who get read, still tend to be uh, very few, an elite within uh, the internet. Um, uh, But part of the problem is we have institutions that that can't deal with this. I mean, the old institutions that, that we inherited from the 20th century, are essentially based, their legitimacy is based on having a sort of semi-monopoly over information in every domain. That's been lost. Uh, so what you have is a struggle for the future right now. I think the future could be way more democratic than the past. I think the internet gives us possibilities that are would have been undreamed of uh, even when I was a young man. Uh, I hope we're headed in that direction. And that's part of the reconfiguration I was talking about. Um, but at the moment, what you have is shock. Uh, the institutions are in a state of shock and the elites are in a state of crisis. And when you get shock and crisis, people just huddle down and figure out who's the bad guy here and how do, how do we protect ourselves? Yvonne? Well, I, I certainly think it's true that the, 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 the 
the problems we face in American life are very often the downsides of good things. Um, life in our country is always getting better and worse at the same time. And every improvement brings with it some change that we didn't expect and may not like. And that's certainly true, as I see it, of the internet and social media, which have brought about very good things, including a, a, a kind of democratization, um, but have also, as it turns out, brought about some very bad things. Um, You know, life in our society tries to sustain a kind of balance between order and freedom. And I think that the challenges we're facing now point especially to the tension between order and freedom, where we have a lot more options, we have a lot more choices, uh, in some ways more control, but as a result, there is also more disorder. And living with that disorder, with that loss of authority, with that loss of a sense uh, that we that there's someone we can trust somewhere, um, is a lot of what's going on now in American life. I think we've seen periods like this before. You can find, you know, you can find Benjamin Franklin writing about the the character of the of the political press at the end of the 18th century in America that sound a lot like what we're saying here. And his complaint too was anybody with with enough money to get a little ink in a printing press can suddenly claim to possess knowledge and print a pamphlet that says all kinds of crazy things about me. Uh, he was complaining personally about being maligned, uh, and he was right. And there was then a kind of reassertion of order as the American economy industrialized and the scale of everything grew and the barriers to entry increased uh, to, to media, among other things. I, I think there's no way around that kind of pattern, that kind of cycle. But the fact that the problems we're dealing with are the other side of a coin of things we like is part of why this is so complicated. We can't just throw it out. I don't want to throw away the internet. The the internet has done a lot of great things for the world. And even if I did want to, there's no way to do it. So too bad. (laughs) Um, We have to think about how to live with this and how to make the most of it and how to change the incentives people confront uh, in, in this terrain. And that's much more complicated than any kind of yes or no question. Yeah. And I would add too. um, the, the you talking about incentives the 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 structure of online organization is such that it is very easy to put 20,000 people on the street uh, but whereas in the olden days uh, if you did that you had to have some organizing uh, group and usually some program that we were organizing around and usually a leadership that tried to put that program in place today you, you can get there with a cluster of slogans. And so the problem is, yes, it's democratic. You have these, these uh, revolts that pretty much, you know, make, make the established elites say, what do you want? What do you want? They surrender. You're in charge now. Tell us what, and they have no clue. Uh, they, they have, for many reasons, partly being that um, we're very fractured, but we're united against. So you have, you have this, um, this crowd on the street that as long as they're against the established order, they are completely one. But if you were to say to them, what is it that you actually want positively, they would start fighting with each other. So there is an incentive there not to do that. But on the other hand, if democratic to me means more than people having the authority to speak, it means what are you representing in terms of programs and in terms of change? Well, your comment about the internet just reminds me, I, I, I did this clubhouse chat a few months ago with someone who see, he was a really old school kind of Jeffersonian agrarian character who, who seemed to earnestly, genuinely believe that 
getting rid of computers ought to be a pressing public policy initiative, which, you know, for, for, for whatever merits that may or may not have, you know, I think Burkean humility and pragmatism would probably militate against it. But let's go on here. Um, so we're next going to hear from, and I, I again apologize in advance if I mispronounced your name, we're going to hear from Divyanj Singh Rathor, who is a paragraph reader from Bangalore, India. My question is, who possesses the onus to reform trust? Any politician doing so would be met with a short career span because polarizing crowds win elections and this is the reason politicians so rarely campaign on bipartisanship. Beginning the process of reforming trust among the masses could prove to be an extremely draining and a difficult task and it could end just as swiftly as one starts the exercise. Marn, you want to give that a, a, a that's first a shot? Really, that's a really good question, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, but but I, I have a sort of an answer which is um, part of what I think we need to, to change, and this is why I'm 100% with Yuval, uh, is um, we need a kind of a, a, a moral reformation at, at the public level, okay? We talk about reforming the elites and changing the elites, and those guys are bad guys, and we want them to change. Well, what about us? I think we need to look ourselves square in the eye, and, and every criticism that we lodge, we need to lodge at the man, at the person in the mirror, okay? Uh, and, and I think if we start doing that, then the consequences of, yeah, okay, you may fail at first, you may, you are going against the tide, but every tide at some point was started in some way. Uh, and if you just kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, those people are, are bad and I can't do anything about it, um, you, you are essentially allowing it to happen. You're voting in that direction. I feel we each have a personal uh, sphere of influence, uh, the people we vote for, the people we, we give money to, the people we pay attention to, the entertainers we applaud. These are, we are creating elites by doing this, all right? And if we take responsibility for that, because the taking of responsibility is not something that should begin at the president's level. It should begin at the voter level, the citizen level. Uh, I, uh, until that reformation starts, uh, it's going to be very hard for us to then turn to the elites and expect them to be better than us. You know, you be self-critical, but I'm going to just continue to be, in, in a sense, performative, a performative public. You well, I, I think it's very true. If our if our if our complaints are essentially bottom up, our expectations have to be too, and that means that they have to start with some form of the question, given the role and responsibility I have here, what should I be doing? And here may be your family, it may be your job, it may be your community. Uh, it, you know, your, your role may be as a, as a neighbor or a parent or a worker, or it may be as president of the United States. If you expect the president to ask that question, you have to ask it yourself yeah. and do what you can to, to foster a culture where it is expected that people ask that question. Uh, I don't think it's impossibly earnest to imagine that doing a little more of that will mean we get a little more of that. Now, we're not going to transform the world that way. I think that that could be a beginning of bigger changes. But without that beginning, it's, it's, it's harder to imagine that such changes being possible. So I really do think that trust, which basically amounts to, at first, not, not even assuming that people have your interest at heart, but that there are things they wouldn't do to you. That kind of trust can begin at the interpersonal level by taking it seriously ourselves and then demanding it of other people. I'm not saying that's an easy way to change society. I just don't know any other way. Yeah, and, and for example, um, something that I've encountered a great deal. I mean, I'm an analyst. I, I, 
the thing I do is try to understand, all right? And I am astounded, astounded how many very brilliant people, when they confront the political opinion that they very strongly disagree with today, uh, instead of saying, well, that's different from what I think, how can I understand it in my terms and in that other person's terms? In other words, assume that that's not a bad person or a stupid person. Assume that from their perspective, they're actually the good and smart person. How can I fit that into my, my uh, um, framework of, of beliefs? Um, that is almost unheard of. That is, people tend nowadays to just kind of go, no, it's me and my ideas. And if you disagree, then immediately we start shouting at each other. And that's part of the pleasure we get out of life today, I think. Well, it's not that hard to understand other people as, as they are themselves, to walk in the shoes of other people. You do it with your family. And I have political disagreements with my children and you know, it, it, it works, right? I, they're all good people. I know they're good people. They're smart people. They have different opinions. Uh, so in the end, uh, we can do that in the family. We can do that with anyone. And I think we should criticize. It, it takes a self-criticism. Understand that you don't have absolute truth. Just like the elites have to understand that they can't give us utopia. We, we don't have a hold of absolute truth. Therefore, this person actually may be teaching us something by disagreeing. Who knows? Okay, I have to jump in here and break up this love fest because after all, this podcast <laughs> is called The Debate. Um, and, you know, as a religious person, I love this spiritual message, okay? This is like, you know, for Josh and I both, you're speaking our language. But at the same time, um, I mean, isn't there a real material aspect that you guys are eliding here, right? I mean, if the question is me looking in the mirror and being a better person, being on a spiritual quest that I happen to be on to, you know, respect people I disagree with, I mean, there are billions and billions of dollars being invested in polarization. There's billions and billions of dollars being invested in the New York Times abandoning, you know, uh, journalistic ethics. There's billions and billions of dollars being invested in in in, in our, our, these, these politicians who do nothing, right, who do nothing and who's benefiting from that, like corporate elites are benefiting from that. And so I just wondered to what extent is this kind of beautiful Burkean question of, you know, responsibility and trust and these sort of very important spiritual, emotional, civic questions in, in the 21st century, like to what extent is that a red herring for just like follow the money? You well, all. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. <laughs> Martin. If, if I were to if I were to give you a billion dollars right now, would you um, change religions? You wouldn't, would you? Uh, I, you're no. thinking about it? I, <laughs> I wouldn't, no. Tell, so tell me what that means. Right. Well, what that means is you are assuming that you are not going to be influenced by all these billions that are being spent out there uh -huh. to incentivize this or incentivize the other. I make it a rule never to assume that I'm smarter than anybody else. Maybe I am, that's some, but I, I certainly am less than others. So um, if you think you can't be swayed by all this, you know, investment in polarization, um, uh, I think that's true of, of most people. But it's Money not true of a corporation, right? It's not true of Amazon, right? It's not true of, and, and we know like, you know, Citizens United, like there are act, there's actual legislation that made politics influenced by or influenceable by, you know, corporate money. I think that it's very easy to overstate the power of that in what we've seen here. I, or or I, I would say you find money on all sides, and you find financial incentives on all sides, and there's a profit motive on all sides, and there's money to be made on all sides. And that means that following money isn't actually going to reveal very much about the dynamics of what we've experienced as a society. 
I think that the, 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 the transformations of culture, which have been made possible by technology in part, certainly by economic changes in part too, but are, are, are more at the bottom of what we've seen. And even though some of those have been driven by economic forces, they're not best understood as economic forces. I think mm. they make more sense ultimately as a set of cultural forces and incentives and dynamics and that it is very important to try to understand people uh, by thinking about that world in which what they're doing is the right thing. This, for me, I'll tell you, it, it's been the hardest thing uh, a, a, about working in politics for 20 years. I, I've been in Washington now for about two decades. I've worked for members of Congress, for a president, uh, Speaker of the House. The hardest thing to come to accept in politics is that everybody believes they're doing the right thing. And it's really true. Just about nobody wakes up in the morning to try to do harm to somebody else. They're all acting in the belief that what they're doing is good for everyone, not just for themselves. They're not all right. And <laughs> there's also a lot of selfishness on the part of everyone involved in this. But the fact that it's there on the part of everyone means that you have to think about some of these forces in their own terms. You know, there's a wonderful argument made by Alexander Hamilton, Federalist One, where he tries to prepare his readers to listen to the debate about the constitutional uh, ratification. And he says, on all sides of this question, there are going to be people who are just looking out for themselves. And the fact that that's true on all sides means you just have to listen to their arguments because selfishness isn't proof that they're right or wrong. And we just have to take it on the merits. I think that's very often true. It's more true than we tend to imagine. I would warn against, um, you know, what Karl Popper used to call historicism, which is, um, you know, the belief that there are these gigantic forces that are work, that we are made by history. None of us actually makes history. We are made by history. Uh, therefore, you know, either if you can't control those forces, then you are just uh, being swept along by them. No, I, I that... I think Popper pretty conclusively demonstrated that was a completely fallacious argument. And um, at some point, people aggregate, opinions aggregate. Uh, there have been tremendous changes in my lifetime. So things change um, and they can change again. I know that speaking personally, I would have been deeply remiss if we had Yuval Levin on for a for, for a podcast and there was not a Federalist paper citation. So I so I for one can go to sleep uh, well at night. But we've got to take another quick break here. Again, you're listening to the debate, a Newsweek podcast. We're partnering this week with Paragraph. So we'll be right back on the other side with some more questions for our very esteemed guests. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. Our guests are Yuval Levin and Martin Gurry, and we're having such a great time with them. We have one more question from a paragraph reader. This one is from Professor Deirdre McCloskey, a professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Aren't you both saying that institutions don't work without ethics. Institutions such as Congress or, or a corporation, seems to me, depend entirely on internal integrity. And isn't the route to a trustworthy 
standard of integrity, not fiddling around with the formal rules of institutions, but mainly through child raising or or a church or synagogue, and especially our popular entertainments such as uh, movies and sports and and so forth. I mean, I learned more. I think we all learned more from Groundhog Day, the film, about an ethical life being a superior life for a human than from all kinds of philosophical works. So don't we need ethics? Martin, Martin you want to hop in there? Well, yes, we need ethics. And, and Deirdre, I'm a big fan of, uh, of her bourgeois uh, virtue books, all of them wonderful. So it's a privilege to answer a question from her. Um, I, it's exactly right. And traditionally, what what would you describe, Deirdre, is is what has happened in this country, which is you learn your your morality at home and at church and your community, and um, and you then assume it as as if you rise in society, if you become an elite, that becomes a foundation of your behavior, and so you have. A, 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 a set of um, an electorate that is not the people who voted for you, but the people who raised you and the people who you raised and the people who uh, saw you grow up, who you don't want to disappoint ever, all right? Because they are more important to you than uh, the getting elected, for example. Um, that doesn't happen so much anymore, though. I mean, I have to say that's a world that's almost vanished. I think part of our Part of our um, pathology today is, um, well, religion is is in steep, steep decline. I just saw a chart about the Zoomer generation's belief in God, and it's like it falls literally falls off the chart. All right, everybody else is kind of slowly hovering upwards in belief in God. They just fall off the chart. Um, uh, communities are not what they used to be. Nobody does sports leagues anymore. Nobody does. Um, you know, chambers of commerce, nobody does the, the, the old Masons. Um, and, and even family is under tremendous stress. And oftentimes you have, we have one parent living one place, another parent living another. So where do you get that, that ethical foundation, that meaning that your life has to have? Um, I think a lot of people try to get it out of politics. And I think that's the, much of the anger that, that you hear is that politics can't ever give you that. Well. Well, I think that's true, but there's also a way in which institutions are always formative of culture and of ethics. And an institution always has an ethic. It can be a broken and uh, deforming ethic, or it can be a healthy and formative one. And for that reason, I think it is important to think about the structures of institutions and the kinds of incentives they create for people and therefore the kind of people they form. Um, that's true, uh, especially of the most formative institutions like family and community, like religious institutions, like schools, but it's also true of workplaces. It's also true even of Congress and the like. So I do think it's important when we ask ourselves, what can we do as opposed to what has gone wrong? And these things are not the same questions. Um, when we think about prescription and not just diagnosis, we have to think about institutional formation and reform because those are things we can do. And there's got to be a place to insert ourselves into that cycle of formation where good people form good institutions, which form good people. What do you do when that's broken at some point so that 
a bad institutions forms bad people and they form bad institutions. What can you change there? I think the answer to that has a lot to do with institutional incentives. And so it is worth our while to think about professional formation, to think about political institutions and the culture of Congress, to think about the media, not because that's where the problem is centered in a diagnostic sense, but because that's something we can do. And that's no small thing. Yeah. And I would add, by the way, that the question of distrust usually gets uh, looked at from one perspective. But I always say, okay, bring, I brought up Amazon before. Uh, what happens with Amazon, right? You, you basically give them your credit card number. You put it online, all right? And you assume without a moment's thought that two days later, if you have Prime like I do, some object is going to show up on your doorstep <laughs> uh, that you're going to take home. That's an amazing amount of trust. And it exists, I think, in business uh, very clearly and probably less obviously in, in, in every walk of American life, okay? My neighbors, I trust explicitly. Uh, my family, I trust explicitly. Uh, we don't talk about that because it's not broken, but, but I think it's there. Let's not exaggerate uh, the, the, the perils of, of the lack of trust. I think the dimensions of it. All right. So we just have a couple more questions for you both. Um, I have to bring up the question of class. You know, we have a huge class divide in America, and it's not actually between elites and everyone else, unless you think of elites as a very diffuse thing. It's really between the college educated and the non-college educated. Um, you know, there's a sort of elite culture that college educated people have that is increasingly, you know, the subject of the sort of anti-elite attacks by Republicans who are increasingly associated with the working class who was abandoned by, you know, the Democrats, the liberals. And I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, the breakdown of institutions and the breakdown of elites, it doesn't harm us all equally. Again, there's kind of this material side to it, but also a cultural side to it. So I'm wondering what you guys make of the sort of the class divide in America, the one we pretend isn't there, but really is there, and how that influences how you think about reforming institutions. Um, Yuval, let's start with you. I think that's very true. And it's a class divide, not only in an economic sense, but especially in a cultural sense. Um, the, there has absolutely been a kind of bifurcation of American life, which one way to think about it is as college educated and non-college educated. You can think of it also in ways that map on pretty well to that, increasingly well, as left and right. Uh, you can think of it somewhat in economic terms. But I would say the economic terms are the least useful because there are a lot of non-college educated people who earn more than a lot of college educated people in America. And yet they understand themselves, and rightly so, as belonging to the same sort of cultural class as non-college educated America. Their, their priorities, their sense of themselves, their understanding of their country and what it is, um, is distinct and distinguished from people who, uh, who, who do have a college degree. I think it's an enormous problem for our society. And it has to do with, with where we start in a sense, which is that we have this one elite class that, got, that runs all of our major institutions. And, and it's just not the case that we have different sorts of elites negotiating with each other now. I think that class problem understood that way as a cultural issue is behind just about everything we think about as the culture war now in American life. Um, and that trying to get at that by providing more opportunities for people without a college degree, but also by providing more opportunities for engagement across these differences so that people have a sense that the people uh, who aren't like them or more like them than they thought um, is, a, is a hugely important uh, task for the future of our country. Martin? 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I actually think this is a, a, an issue in which the elites, um, and I think you all said it before, is that they really meant to do well. All right. But at some point, beginning of the 1960s, and just kind of skyrocketing, probably under Bill Clinton, uh, it occurred to the people at the top that how did I get here? I mean, Bill Clinton, I mean, he comes from low, right? And he got high. And how did I get here? Well, I was a Rhodes Scholar, all right? I was a really good student. And the thought is, well, everybody who is, who is down there should be provided uh, with a college education. So it's massive subsidizing of that. Uh, massive uh, kind of, when you have that kind of a gigantic demographic growth, uh, the universities could not possibly continue to be what they had been before. Um, and okay, the theory was great if you could invert the social pyramid. In other words, if suddenly the, the top of the pyramid went like this, then you could push all these people to the top, right? But in fact, it's, it's, it's still that old little point at the top. And so you have lots of people. I mean, just as I think divisive as the people who don't have uh, diplomas and feel culturally alienated by the elites, I think there's a gigantic class of, uh, of college graduates who felt like they were promised something. I don't know what it was, but they were promised something. Bill Clinton told me I could be a Rhodes Scholar and a president, you know, um, and and uh, and it, it ends up being uh, you, you end up working at a you know drugstore or some menial job that you wouldn't have needed your your, your uh, education for. I think we need very profoundly to rethink what the university is, uh, what it, what's, uh, those institutions that need to be um, you know reconfigured. I would put right next to our federal government. I would put the university. Uh, it is absolutely not working the way it is right now. So. Perfect transition is actually exactly where I wanted to go for my final question was actually higher education and the American university in general. Um, Yval, my uh, good friend Arthur Millick had a wonderful essay for your publication, National Affairs. I think it was last year in 2020, um, entitled Preventing Suicide by Higher Education. Um, and, you know, it was a provocative piece. Um, uh, but th that is a very, very common sentiment right now, for, sh for sure, on the American, American right. I, I would think even at in certain pockets of the American left as well, once you kind of get outside of the professional managerial class, so to speak. Um, I, I, I guess I would I, I would ask you, and then Martin would love to hear your response to, to Yuval on this, is um, surely there obviously is such thing, right, as, as institutions that, um, you know, despite kind of our, you know, Burkean kind of anti-French revolution proclivities ought to be burned down. Uh, to, to give one extreme example, um, uh, slavery obviously was an institution that Lincoln was just to wage a war in part to burn down. Um, I'm not analogizing the current state of American higher education to antebellum chattel slavery, obviously, but um, I, I guess I would ask you, um, how do we know when it is time for an institution to actually not be reformed, but just raised, burned to the ground? And um, I would be curious if higher education in America specifically has reached that point yet. Yeah, I mean, look, I've tr I always try, as you can tell in this conversation, to be to see the upside, to be cheerful. I don't find much about contemporary American higher education to be cheerful about. I think the problems run very deep. They're very profound. And they're made worse by the importance of higher education as an elite-forming, gatekeeping institution. Um, these are enormous problems. That said, I think in our society, you attack that kind of problem by, by creating competition for these institutions rather than by burning them down. I don't think 
that the truly punitive sort of public policy approaches that genuinely try to burn down these these institutions or just to attack them for the sake of attacking them really achieve very much. They're not likely to work. You know, Harvard's barely going to notice the tax on its endowment. Um, and they're, they're, they, 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 they turn the volume up without really giving you the opportunity to achieve very much. I think this should be an era of institution building in higher ed, starting new institutions, not just reforming. There's no amount of reforming of, of Harvard and Yale that's going to fundamentally change those institutions right now. But genuine competition, looking for different ways of allowing people to get the kinds of benefits that higher education actually should provide them, whether that's skills training for the modern economy or whether that's the kind of liberal education that some people desire out of, out of university uh, training. Th- those kinds of forms of competition definitely uh, should be pursued right now. This ought to be a moment for that. We've seen moments for that. A lot of institutions of higher education that we think have always been there came out of a moment like this, Stanford and University of Chicago and Duke uh, and Johns Hopkins, all created at the end of the 19th century, basically in a moment when a lot of Americans with a lot of money didn't want to send their sons to Harvard. Yeah. And we're in a moment like that, and we should be thinking about what to build instead of Harvard and Yale rather than just burning them down. Martin, well, quick personal, as as an alum of both Duke and the University of Chicago, I definitely appreciate you all's answer. But um, uh, Martin, we'll be curious for for your thoughts on what you've all said. No, I mean, uh, unfortunately, another moment of violent agreement. I think I think I think it's uh, like I said before, Badia's going to exit the podcast, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Martin. uh, You're destroying our brand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I promise we'll punch out after after the the sound is off. Basically, next to the federal government, which is, of course, the, the heart of our democracy, I think the, the, the places that provide us with the people that are going to be staffing the government need to be looked at uh, anew. And, and I don't believe in burning down institutions, even slavery. You needed 20 acres and a mule. You needed some kind of thing to put in its place. You can't just, you know, abolish something and expect people to work it out. So um, and I think in this era of, of uh, digital technology, the possibilities are, are endless. And again, I, I mean, the, the the downside for me is always, why are we so unimaginative today? I mean, the, the possibilities for both um, institution changing and institution making uh, with digital technology are immense, immense. And, and somehow or another, we're not we're not getting there. Um, this could be a moment like, you know, uh, in, when the phonograph was invented, um, everybody got to hear Caruso, right? So you you suddenly have have a possibility of anybody anywhere in the United States or the world could could be taught by the very star professors uh, of uh, every university, and it would become their interest, these uh, professors' interest, to of course, you know, make money off of that, and and you have a completely different model than this bizarre, semi-feudal semi sort of germanic turn of the 19th century uh agglomeration of stuff well on that note we are pretty out of time here um so yuval evan and martin gurry we are just so thrilled to have brought you both on here um this was a, a newsweek podcast partnered with paragraph and we're thrilled that this was the inaugural partnership podcast so thank you guys both so much for joining us thank you well, so thank much. you it's been fun so we just heard um a 
wonderful, slightly high level, uh, maybe more than slightly high level, but a, a certainly from my perspective, a deeply um, engaged and informed conversation between Yuval Levin and Martin Gurry. What a great debate. I'm also very pleased with myself that I was here as I was the <laughs> element of debate in this love fest. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, uh, we don't want to bring on people every week who are going to agree as much necessarily as Yuval and Marin just did. But this is uh, this was highbrow, sophisticated stuff. I mean, you know, Badia, you self-identify as a as a populist. I, I, I don't love the term populist, but I obviously on policy have some populist inclinations. So it was really great to just bring on two people to discuss kind of the flip side of that coin, whether we have an elite that can be saved or salvaged or whether we should just burn the whole thing down. And on a personal note, um, I'm, I'm such a longtime uh, fan of Yuval Levins. It was really just so, so wonderful to get a chance to talk with him. So hope that you enjoyed it as, as, as much as I did. Um, and if you're the listener and you enjoyed it, then you can leave us a five-star review, hopefully, at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. If you have a smart speaker, whether it's uh, Amazon's Alexa or elsewhere, you can just request that it play Newsweek's The Debate, and it should pop right up for you. But we will see you next week. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. See you next time.